Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning. So, um, oh, here comes an important person. That's my daughter. You're all important, but this is special to have her here. And um, have you noticed there aren't a lot of jokes being told these days? You know, which is kind of, you can under kind of understand because of the uh, times. But I thought I'd tell a joke. Well, not really. I'm going to show you a joke. This is from the New Yorker. It's a sign on a telephone pole that says, missing my hair. So that's supposed to be funny. And then I didn't get to read Henry Miller's um, quote from yesterday because we don't have Zazen yesterday. If we have not found heaven within, it is certainly you will not find it without. Okay. You know, in the late time, in the late night uh, shows, they have all these little like pieces of paper. So I'm kind of doing that. Um, about three or four years ago, in either Peg's or Flint's practice discussion group, I was talking about how I felt I was in a steel room and all I wanted to do was to find the door, not even to open it. And as I was sitting today, I kept thinking, I've been there in that steel room. And then I realized at the St. Louis Art Museum, there's a sculpture by Richard Serra and it's a rectangle of steel that's about six feet high maybe it's six feet by six feet and about between two and three inches wide and then this is going to sound a little strange um, but i guess you're probably used um, to me saying things that are strange by now um especially my daughter is i'm sure um so i was in this Richard Serra sculpture that I think is in St. Louis. And um, it was these panels arranged around a perimeter and you could get into the space, but there was just a little bit of space between the panels and there was no doors. Okay, the strange part is there were pink flamingos all over. And I'm not sure if that was a dream or if they really were there, but but I went with my friend Hans and um, we talked about the pink flamingos, you know, the plastic ones that stick in the ground. It was very, very strange. So um, how that relates to all this is that um, the name of the book of koans that we read from in, in Soto Zen is called The Gateless Barrier. And another translation is the gateless gate, which I like a little bit better because it's more confusing. But if you can imagine you're inside this barrier and there's no gate, and yet it's so hard to get out. Um, the koan itself I'm going to read. And these koans were put together. They were old called public cases and they were put together by a man by woman so he comments so if the koan isn't clear enough woman is sure to confuse you more once in ancient times when the world honored one which is buddha was at vulture peak he twirled a flower before his assembly assembled disciples all were silent only maha Kashapa broke into a smile. And I want you to remember that as I talk, 
that he twirled the flower. And that was kind of something I had um, forgotten about. But when you twirl something, you show all sides of it. But also metaphorically, when you twirl something, you all sides of something is not just in this moment, but from its being a seed to being a flower to being dirt. So he's showing all of the flower, not just one side of it. The world honored one said, I have the eye treasury. Now, remember that word eye, because I come back to that in my last drawing. I have the eye treasury of right Dharma, the subtle mind of Nirvana, the true form of no form, and the flawless gate of the teaching. It is not established upon words and phrases. It is a special transmission outside tradition. I now entrust this to Mahakashapa. So actually at this point, the koan is very, very clear um, that the Dharma can't be expressed with words and Kashapa smiles and therefore understands it. And so he's going to be, um, he's going to be a Buddha's successor. So um, how did I do um, 80 to 90 drawings about this every day? And how did I get so um, caught up in this? And well, that's the question. Um, Wuman made this comment and, and assembled this um, somewhere about a thousand years ago. And he says, so remember, his job was kind of, he was a very contemporary guy. And I mean, he could have lived today and he wants to confuse you. He wants to make you think more about it. Um, and he also wants you to laugh a little. Gold-faced Gautama insolently degrades noble people to commoners. He sells dog flesh under the sign of Mutin and thinks it is quite commendable. Suppose that all the monks had smiled. How would the eye treasury have been transmitted? Or suppose that Maha Kashapa had not smiled. How could he have been entrusted with it? If you say the eye treasury can be transmitted, that would be as if the gold-faced old fellow were swindling people in a loud voice at the town gate. If you say the eye treasury cannot be transmitted, then why did the Buddha say that he entrusted it to Maha Kashapa? And then there's a verse that further confuses you. Twirling a flower, the snake shows its tail. Maha Kashapa breaks into a smile and people and divas are confounded. So a woman wants to leave you with confusion. When I wrote this, um, I guess um, last, no, this morning, koans are supposed to be public cases. I think of them as tricksters. Sometimes, like with the flower sermon, they are so obvious. The Dharma can't really be conveyed in words, so Buddha, in picking a successor, uses a secret handshake, and Kashapa reaches out his hand with a smile. So how did I get taken over and over again, like if I was watching the pee and shell game? Flint said, how simple can you let this be? I told my wife this morning that you can't understand something until you are confused. Woman attempts to confuse us with his questions. If we think we understand, we are deluded. And then my wife, who I lovingly call Mensa, told me this morning that finally you understand that it is as it is. She's been saying that for 51 years, but she always says it when my hearing aids are not in, so I do not hear her. The road takes you full circle. In the end, maybe you realize that a mountain is just a mountain after you so brilliantly discover that it isn't a mountain at all, but a host of myriad things. Then I came across this wonderful um, quote by Henry David Thoreau. We need the tonic of wildness, 
to wade sometimes in marshes where the bitter and the meadow hen lurk and hear the booming of the snipe to smell the whispering sedge where only some wilder and more solitary fowl builds her nest and the mink crawls with its belly close to the ground. At the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things, we require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable, that land and sea be infinitely wild, unsurveyed and unfathomed by us because unfathomable. So this is kind of how I've been pursuing this um, this wild koan. Um, and these drawings are, uh, well, my blog is called uh, Diaristic Notations. And right now I think there's 2,749 entries over about 10 years. And it's what I'm thinking each day. And you'll see that as, um, as I show you and read these, um, I might no longer um, agree with what I said or where I was. This is a painting, obviously, that someone did of Buddha holding up the flower. And it's so special to me that he's holding it with his fingers because with your fingers, there's so much care and you're gonna see a different hand gesture in the last image I'm showing you, which I'm not sure is authentically Buddhist, but I found it. Um, and think too that, that twirling this thing indicates its entire history with no beginning and no end. The hermit in the hut doesn't respond to the sexy granddaughter. The old woman throws him out and burns his hut down. The many monks don't respond to the beautiful flower. They don't become Buddha's successor. How is a Buddhist to behave in the face of the intoxicating beauty of a ripe flower? Do they reply as the hermit did? An old tree on a cold cliff midwinter no warmth. Big deals and little deals. Burton Russell said he used to worry a lot and then decided that whatever happened didn't amount to a hell of beans in relation to the vastness of the universe. Then there is the butterfly effect where every little action like turning off a light can affect our earth a hundred years from now. Buddha holds up a flower. Was it really such a big deal and why? And if you didn't know, that's a, that's a hill of beans. That's what they look like. We must make one mistake after another. Dogen. Buddha made mistakes before his enlightenment, following false teachers. Later, he didn't describe which of the rules which should be followed after his passing and which should be avoided. Caused great confusion. And he repeatedly denied women from being ordained until he finally didn't. He had to be asked many times. Yet with complete confidence, he held up a flower so Kashapa would smile. And I completely disagree with me here um, that one thing caused the other or that he did it so that Kashapa would smile. I think and would have been a better word. He held up the flower and Kashapa smiled. I thought about the 1200 pages of monastic codes that I have no longer needed at one Zen temple because they had another copy. Did the many monks make a mistake by not smiling? Did the hermit in the hut make a mistake by not warming up to the beautiful woman? There was, pardon my bloopers on TV years ago. At least then we learned to laugh at mistakes. When Buddha woke, he saw his past and future lives. 
it would seem he would see the outcome of his actions, thus shifting my experience of the koan. No longer is he wondering what will happen if I hold up the flower. No longer is this a spontaneous act, nor is Kashyapa's smile spontaneous if he too, a former Buddha, knows what will happen. Quandary, do I abandon this road because I don't like where it leads? And then I wrote, it all happened before it happened. And I was taking the deterministic view here that uh, upset Peg quite a bit. And she said, no, 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 this isn't the way it is. So uh, kind of an interesting con in itself is, can you both see the future and the future not be determined? So if someone um, figures that out, please let me know. I don't know. How do I respond to this opportunity to care? Even asking this question wastes time, but not asking can be dangerous. My story today is that Buddha looked out at the monks and saw that more words would be like tying weights to one drowning. So Mr. B held up a flower saying, whoa, horsey, you need to stop and listen. Listen to the sound of one hand clapping. And Mr. K smiled. Basho, Basho was a great haiku writer, I think in the 17th century, had acquired kurumi or lightness, an artistic spontaneity, which is the fruit of a lifetime of poetic cultivation. Buddha had this lightness when he held up the flower and Kashapa smiling as a recognition of that lightness or even humor came from that same boundless place. There was an element of play here in the best sense of the word, like in Blake's organized innocence. So William Blake, the poet had this, this idea that you went from innocence like a child to experience and then to organize innocence. So you, you come back to where you were. And in the drawing, um, Kashapa is upside down holding a beach ball and smiling as Buddha smiling too. But I don't know if the monks could see Buddha smiling when he held up the flower. And the beach ball has been very important to me because I had a philosophy teacher in college who said that you should imagine yourself like a beach ball floating in the ocean and you can't determine where it's going to go, but you can just tap it little bits and change its direction. Um, alter its direction, not change it, just a little bit. So Shakespeare wrote, all the world's a stage and all the men and women, merely players. The koan is a play. Buddha and Kashapa didn't plan out their transmission. They didn't need to. They were so in tune that it was no surprise to Kashapa that Buddha held up that flower, nor to Buddha that Kashapa smiled. It had been scripted and characters had been cast. Ready, roll, action. Oops, filled, film lingo. So here too, I'm pursuing the deterministic view and, and uh, which I don't agree with at all. But what I did is I took, um, you know, if it was a thought that came in my head, I kind of explored it. That's kind of what I do, even though I don't agree with it. Buddha sat on Vulture Peak, barely visible to the half mile of seated monks who couldn't clearly see him holding a flower, nor hear him declare, it does not rely on letters and is transmitting outside the scriptures. I now pass it on. The story is beyond our imagination. Reducing it to a, a case of cause and effect is a sacrilege. It is silent and deafening. Um, so you wanna go there to Vulture Creek? Someone's gotta shake their head yes. Okay, great. So this is Vulture Peak where Buddha held up the flower or um, rotated the flower and there's Buddha 
up there and Trouty had actually um, been there. So I asked her, could many, many, many monks uh, also be there? And she said, no, there wasn't room down below. So anyway, uh, we have to use our imaginations here. When one's friend loses a loved one, there is nothing we can say. The silence of the Buddha when he held up the flower was the silence of that elk. Here was the most perfect of all beings tragically struck down after a very short life. Kashyapa's smile was not one of joy, nor was it one of sadness. It was an acknowledgement that the impermanence of life as it is, is all we've got, and that's okay. In the Jewish Shema, we hear we are to love with all our heart. Buddha's sidekick, Ananda, posited that spiritual friendship was half of the Dharma. No, said Buddha, it is the whole bit. So it is with the flower. It isn't different from the Dharma, but rather it is the whole Dharma express, expressed succinctly and without any words. Someone said today that form contradicted emptiness. No, I said, they are one. The flower is one with the Dharma, so subtle that it needs no words, just like love. And um, Buddha here is wearing a t-shirt and it says D equals F, which is Dharma equals flower. And the original sutras were all, you can see them in museums, like in the Houston Museum um, of Fine Arts, there's, there's some, and they're about this big and they're painted, I suppose, on some kind of birch bark or something. Um, they're written and each sutra is an individual piece of wood. And that's what he's holding up with his other hand. When Mensa said, I like the drawing, I read that as she didn't like the text. I asked her why. She said, it was too complicated that a flower is just a flower. What else might be ordinary? Is Buddha just an ordinary man for he said, I and all beings are enlightened? Was Kashyapa just a regular guy as well, maybe? Maybe it was his ordinary being that could simply smile at a flower. You know, there's that, um, I can't think of the name, but there's an English uh, film uh, about a gardener and he's kind of a simpleton and he everyone thinks he's um, the wisest guy in the world. While I worked on the drawing, Mensa was planting flowers in our garden. Who was the Bodhisattva today? The rabbi said the reason women didn't need to study the Torah is that they were already living it. That's the Dharma to which Kashyapa was responding. It is the wisdom beyond wisdom. It is the smile, not just at the flower, not just at the teaching of and by the flower, but it is a smile of life itself. It is awe. And it is about that point where you don't have to learn another thing to do the needed work. We think we must get a little better and then we can save the world. No. I asked Mensa if Buddha holding up a flower was like breathing in and Kashyapa smiling at the flower was like breathing out. No, said she. she said no, the other way around. Her argument was that you smell when you breathe in, which Kashyapa did before he smiled. Striking out again and then sitting this morning, I was struck by how far Buddha went out on a limb at Vulture Peak when he held up the flower and how Kashyapa connected so intimately with him when he shot Buddha that smile, warm hand to warm hand. So, you know, to say the least, that's taking a big chance to, to hold up a flower and not say anything uh, in front when you're talking to 80,000 people. I was so wrong in projecting what I saw when Buddha looked out onto the 80,000 monks. 
These were his children that he loved unconditionally, and they were his hope for the continuation of the Dharma. They were not drowning in the Dharma, nor were they swimming like fishes in the ocean. They were simply who and where they were. Though Buddha said he had never said a word, he kept on teaching, for much had to be spoken before one like Kashapa could light up upon seeing a flower. There must have been a period of waiting before he held up the flower. That's fun for me to imagine, like how much time you t would you take with the guys almost um, thinking, should I leave now? No one's, nothing's being said. And then the flower gets held up. The timing was critical. It would have been just a little longer than what was comfortable. And as I read this over um, last night, I thought, no, not a little longer, much longer, you know, really playing with that time. One could hear a pin drop as they waited for the Dharma to be spoken. The memory banks were open and shelves were cleared for no words, for new words. So there was no recording, obviously, and there was no, not even writing, but there was just memory. So they would have had Kim, Kim, excuse me, the images are not advancing. We're still on the rabbi and the reason women didn't study the Torah. Is that true for everyone? Yes. One just changed to there must have been a period of waiting. Oh, okay. That's the one I'm on. Okay. Well, it just changed that now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The memory banks were open and shelves were cleared for new words. Anticipation was so thick that speech would have knocked the leaves off the trees. And then silence was broken with the display of the flower and equanimous being with no preferences. Did it advance? Yes, Kim. Great, great. I'm so angry I could kill him. Then we hopefully see the one who is angry. And I'm thinking, you know, some of the monks might have thought this, and that doesn't make them, I, I guess the word less. We start to see the other as a precious human being and say to ourselves, God love them as we forgive our trespassers. In the flower sermon, the other monks missed the boat. Their expectation got the best of them. How long could they have held on to not being chosen? So they could have been bitter about this the rest of their lives, or could they follow that first thought of disappointment with the question, when is the next boat? That's the test of our practice. So after Kashapa, there were many other people who were successors in the lineage. Two women have babies on the same day. One is stillborn. Both claim the live one. That's wisdom in a sense, finding a clever solution to a difficult problem. You know, not a very good solution, but it was a little bit clever that they each claimed the baby. The women go to, they start fighting, of course. The women go to King Solomon. He asks that the baby be cut in half. The real mother's love takes over and relinquishes her live baby. King S is exhibiting wisdom beyond wisdom, touching the heart and body of the real mother. Unlike the wisdom Dharma, the flower that Buddha holds up touches the heart and soul of Kashapa. A heartfelt smile ensues. So this is like a bittersweet thing, this flower. It's not just beauty, frozen beauty. Neither Buddha nor the flower nor Kashapa spoke. The Buddha had no own being, meaning that the flower did not generate itself or have essence. There are the three silences in the flower sermon. The Buddha said no words. The flower had no own being, no, no essence. And Kashapa smiled. Dissecting a flower, one initially finds only parts. Dissecting the parts, there are just particles of dust. And these particles are 99 and seven more nines percent space. No essence, no words, no transformation, still another mute. 
And it's interesting that um, I was recently reading about uh, ex the experiencer and the experience. And how what we try to do is put aside the experiencer and just be in the experience. So the flower is absolutely able to do that because it doesn't, I don't think, it's not able to look at itself experiencing who it is. The War Department paid Langley $50,000 to invent the first airplane. His crew had engineering training, believing that flying was a question of power as the 80,000 monks had faith in the power of their Dharma knowledge. You know, that's the trouble with, with knowing too much is you think you have so much power that you can handle anything. They, the Wright brothers had no such training. They worked in a bike shop where unstable vehicles needed balance, the middle way, equanimity, not being caught by preferences. The flower was a contest between learned, powerful monks and a balanced balance kashapa acting without the shackles of the Dharma. Well, the Wright brother was able to succeed because they didn't have all this knowledge that the engineers did. His humiliation and false accusation is the same flower that the Buddha held up. We say that if you want to find a teacher, choose the person who gives you the most trouble. And here in the drawing, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, here we go. Oh, there we go. Um, someone saying to you, you have three heads. And so they're making an accusation of some sort. And those at soccer camp, everyone gets awards. Those are fl aren't flowers. They are just non-awards that teach us nothing. Buddha's flower was a kind teaching for the many monks. Given the speed at which Kashapa reacted with a smile, I assume he recognized this generous and perfect teaching. The Dharma is not the Dharma. The flower is the Dharma this time. Oops. Emptiness may be all of Buddhism. Believing that things arise on their own, that they don't change, and that they have a permanent essence causes our suffering. And you see how someone brings you some flowers and then they start to die and then you start to suffer and you wish, oh, they had, I wish they hadn't died. Um, we go through this over and over and over again. The paint starts chipping from our house. We're so excited when we get our house painted and then it starts chipping off and fading. And uh, the flower embodies emptiness. It comes from a seed that comes from another flower. It changes with the blink of an eye and whatever is its essence now is not what it was or what it will be. Are we any different than the flower, except that we often reside in our delusions, believing that we are more than five skandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness? Kashyapa's smile is his comfort with just this. The flower is just what it is, as we are. Nothing more than our skandhas, also called heaps. And I love the word heaps because uh, it's kind of nothing special. So I, I mentioned earlier the I. I have the I treasury of right Dharma. So there's an I in Buddha's hand as he's holding it up. And he's twirling the flower. It says, Lord Buddha's hand with eye holding lotus flower. Uh, so 
So even his hand sees the flower. If you'd like, you could ask questions. Glad to see Paul. Paul must have a question. You're muted, Paul. Paul, wait, before you ask a question, I got to say something. I was reading about this great magician and and one of the the people could there was one trick he did with cards where he would um, ask you to think of a card and think of a number and then he you he you would go to the deck of cards and that particular card was was that number in the deck and people couldn't believe he could do this so one of the things they thought is well the person who he called on was a stooge like you and i have arranged this right where you're going to ask a question but we haven't done it have we no okay <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, I, I was sitting there going, do I have a question? <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I got off on a tangent on one of your drawings, and it was dealing with the eye and this thing about how the Buddha could see in the future that Kashyapa was going to be the, the, the successor. And for some reason, it just popped in my head, so if, if you can see the future, when does it become the present? And, and I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but you know, we're kind of taught that the past and the future don't exist. Well, in, so Buddhism, only... in Buddhism, actually they're all one. Okay. The past, present and future. So, well, then that makes, that makes sense then. Yeah. They're not, they're not separated like this was, okay. this is going to be, and especially part of you, Paul, is um, your anticipation of what you're going to become. You, you carry that around with you every day. We all do. And what's going to become of the people you love? You know, there's no way of avoiding that unless you have really serious dementia. <laughs> I mean, I... I don't, I don't think so. I don't know what it's like, but I suppose that if, you know, then you would only be in the present and that wouldn't be very rich. And our past is the same way. It, it happened a long time ago. In fact, the first mindfulness um, workshop intensive that I took was at a Vietnamese temple and I asked the monk, so can you think about the past in the present? And he went on for an hour and I didn't understand anything he said, except it was yes. So you can either be lost in the past or you can bring it up to the present and realize it's part of who you are now. So I need to, um, here, if I change the view, I can see all of you. Yeah, Mary. But I just I wanted you to repeat, I think it was a William Blake um, comment that you were saying about how, you know, as children, we start out as our innocence and then we go through a rotation experience 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 to organize. Um, yes. OK. And it, it also reminded me once of what Flint said in terms of like enlightenment or whatever is is this that you have to like build a self first of all before you can lose it all right so that at, there was something i recall in one of his practice groups that he mentioned to that effect is is, is that sort of you go th you go through your suffering to to uh achieve that that again that sense of no self can you speak to that well, I've just been hearing that from those of you who are therapists that that you can't get rid of the self until you you develop it. Right. 
<laughs> and and so uh like from an ifs perspective it's like the essence of you know the exiles or the child is in there and then you you build all these adaptations all right and then you start to recognize your adaptive um parts and how necessary they they were for survival and then but the sense of you know when i'm 60 and what helped me when i was six maybe not so um what beneficial for myself or others and so um that's what it it struck me the similarities of like so you go to an organized innocence um or more of self-leadership yeah and that's why i think um kashapa's smile was really that organized innocence to me mm -hmm. he just was able to enjoy this okay this beauty or whatever and the one who experiences without the experiencer is also the organized innocence when you're learning calligraphy, you um, there's a lot of, of verbalization. There's a lot of things you're told that this mark going in this direction means this and this and this and and the same with my wife's tea ceremony. Mm -hmm. There's a everything has a meaning. Everything is economical, but in the end, it's just a flow. Okay. But to get there, you have to go through this this crud. You have to be in a, I think, a steel room, and you have to, you know, just search first for where the door might be, and and maybe you create the door, and then you realize there's no door, but there's just an opening. I mean, it it all the series of steps, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Rosemary. So, so I've been thinking a lot about all of the other monks and, um, you know, and also the relationship between students and teachers. And the first thing is trust, right? So if they trusted the Buddha, you know, and, and they're not a monolith, they're all in, you know, each of them is in like a different place. And um, <clears throat> so if they really trusted and they would trust to know that he's making the right choice and also um that um oh, what was my other thought about oh yes that if they, if they were so clinging to their desire to be chosen then that's you know that's a question too so i think my thought is you know they're probably all in a different place with trusting him and in with their clinging to what they you know this position that they want um that they you know that they're all different and that yeah anyway that's my thought yeah i think um the torah is a great example of people who are trusting god but then not trusting and in fact when they go to get the, the ten commandments um moses is a day late coming back and they completely fall apart so what happened to their trust there? You know, like if you're not willing to wait one more day, they counted days in different ways, I guess, 30 days, 31 days, something. He, he didn't come back in time. And so, so they trust and then they don't trust. And I think we all do that. But it's not the fact that, I mean, they're human beings. Like we exactly. all, yeah. Becky, uh, yeah, I I was actually going to say something like that as part of my understanding of what our trusting ever is, is that if we can hold ourselves somewhere where we try to only let our trust be based on what's likely, like not on what we want or what somebody even said in words, but but that, for instance, a friend of mine, I might trust her to do what she's likely to do rather than necessarily what she said, right? And, and similarly, I think one of the things that we 
gift each other is to trust each of us to be human and and to and to notice in ourselves and each other that what that means is we're all we're we're all learning we're all changing and and so the impermanence factor is another really important aspect of trust and also of knowing that we make up what we thought it was that we saw going on and therefore we decide that that's that's what i'm going to trust um but one of the questions I've been, I mean, like things I've been pondering since you uh, posed it the other day, um, you know, the, the, the concept of, of essence and, and certainly the, the question, it, it's, it's about the, the self, no self stuff, of course, right? Is, is do, do we as a person have an essence that may continue throughout us, but change in its qualities. Uh, does the flower have a self essence? You know, you, you know, there are many ways to, to think about that. And I think it depends on what we think essence is. If it's our constructs of, of being, then we have it and, and we absolutely don't have it. Uh, but if, if really what it is, is the, the relationship of all the energies, the life energy that is within some contained thing, whatever it is, whether it's one cell or a flower or a person, then there is a self that will continue because the energy moves on in the universe, whether we're alive with it at that moment or not. And it has been changed in moving through us. Yeah, it helped me the idea that no, we're saying no permanent essence, but I, I, I do think it's more than that. Peg was talking to me about own being and she saw it as a flowing river, which is more like what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if it's changing all the time, it, is it really something? I don't know. And, and so the, the problem that you were having to figure out about the grammar in relationship to, to do you say past tense or current or, or what in relationship to a flower, um, that, that it is all of them. I think so. Yeah. And, and so it's because the, the flower will be remembered by people that, that, have, that have been affected by it. And the flower will have changed energy in, in its moving on once it, like it, it'll just have that same energy moving through other things and in different configurations. And that's itself. Yeah. Or was for a while. Paul, did you want to say something again? Um, I, I'm finding the discussion fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm going off on all these different thoughts all at the same time. Uh, going through some of your drawings and the, the descriptions that you provided with each of them, I. I'm picking up on a theme, or maybe it's just my perception of it. And I was gonna just, everything that we see and do here and understand is all couched in our own perception, our own language. Um, we, and I tell my daughter this a lot of times that we are meaning makers. We, we provide meaning for our experiences and that type of thing. You made a comment about we are the, are about the experience and the experience, experiencer, and we should try to get rid of the experiencer and just see the experience kind of a thing. And I guess there's maybe a little bit enlightenment on that concept, um, but then we tend to transfer our feelings and thoughts to other things such as the flower. And we're making, I think we're making an assumption, if I'm not mistaken, that 
the flower has no essence or no words for itself. But I'm wondering if it's just because we don't understand the flower's language so that it can speak for itself. Yeah, so I, the jury's out on this. Oh, okay. But can, can you talk a little bit about the experience and the experiencer and kind of clarify that a little bit? Well, a car swerving around the corner and I'm walking with my neighbor and without being the experiencer, without thinking about what I'm doing, I pull him out of the way. So there I'm purely the experience. Okay. Um, but a lot of times, like I imagined originally with this koan that so Buddha woke up in the morning or maybe the night before he thought, well, I have to pick a successor today. So I'm going to go and I'm going to stand up there and I'm going to hold up this flower. You know, and that he was all in his discursive mind. And that, that was my delusion. I, you know, I, I think that's, I think what he did was totally spontaneous, like the, the koan about washing the bowl, you know, the Buddha, the, the teacher, the student says, I want to learn about Zen. And the teacher said, have you eaten your breakfast? Well, then wash your bowl. I mean, it was one thing just followed the other. And trying to be there, you know, sometimes when I'm wheeling my cart through Central Market, I'm that's our grocery store here. Uh, I'm somewhere else and I start hitting people hitting things, knocking things over. You know, we all do that, don't we? You know, on a bad day. And um, there the experiencer is, is you know, I, I'm not present. I think it's just another way of saying about being present to be the okay. experience. And you'd hope, you'd hope that, that like, like, for example, if you were kissing someone, you would be into kissing them and not into, oh, uh, how am I going to kiss them? What, you know, on and on and on and on. You'd be somewhere else then. Okay, I think um, it's time to uh, do our final service. And I hope we can dedicate this service to um, today to uh, Marie's daughter, Katie, who is having a uh, uh, big surgery on Tuesday, and also to Claudine's um daughter who's nicely recovering and going to go home from the hospital tomorrow right tomorrow yeah so anyway let's let's um and for the welfare of all beings so we will do this <laughs>